It can be harnessed as a weapon against Satan and the demons. It has been discussed and written on in numerous church councils. It holds pride of place in the divine liturgy and has helped centuries of faithful memorize scripture. However, in modern times, we have seen an abandonment of this truth or cheap substitutes enter into the church. We are talking about chant and the music of divine liturgy today with a man that knows this reality and is working to return sacred music to its rightful place. You will want to stay with us. Welcome to another episode of the Catholic Gentleman Podcast. Today we are joined by uh, Paul Jernberg, uh, who uh, is multi-talented, but uh, primarily is a composer. Uh, he was born in Chicago in 1953, having studied piano from an early age. He pursued a career as a piano soloist and accompanist, which began in the Midwest and continued in Sweden, where he lived and worked from 1983 to 1993. While in Europe, his musical work expanded to include composition and choral directing. And after his reception into the Catholic Church in 1992 and his return to the U.S., his career was devoted to teaching, conducting, and composing at the service of Catholic schools and parishes in Illinois and Massachusetts. Since 2017, he has continued this threefold work uh, as founding director of the Magnificat, Magnificat Institute of Sacred Music, a nonprofit organization now based in Lander, Wyoming. So, Paul, thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Well, wonderful. Yeah, so you've had kind of a, a long journey um, to where you are today, uh, and that includes kind of your conversion to the Catholic Church. But but why don't you guys just take us back for a minute to, you know, your early days of discovering music and what really captivated your attention about music and made you say at some point, I want to dedicate my life to this path? Right. Well, I think the, the first exposure I had was definitely in my family. And, and my family was very uh, musically talented. And, and it, it went, it goes back generations, uh, especially my, my fa father's family from Sweden. Uh, great uh, a tradition of music in the family. My, my grandmother was a concert violinist and mm. uh, I was close to her and uh, she had a very powerful impact on me. But also when we met as a family, we would often sing and do music and piano and violin, etc. And it was uh, it was an immersion in the, I say the glory of music, the gift of music. And so that's really what uh, what first got me started was simply being part of my family, being uh, in my family with all the different activities and all the music that was going on there. Uh, I started studying at about six years old, uh, playing the piano. And it was a, because it was something that I just resonated strongly with me and that I enjoyed doing and that I had a talent for, I just naturally developed that. And that sort of st started blossoming in high school as I started doing work with the, our school orchestra, doing piano concertos and so forth. Uh, and, and so that was the begin. That's what got me started with with music, and has continued throughout my life in one way or another. 
So that's wonderful. And so I'd like to hear on this pathway, what got you into composition, right? Because I know as a professional musician myself that um, composition is a different part of the brain. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so performing music at a high level, orchestral level, something I've done has been a, a great joy and a great passion and great beauty of my life. But actually composing is something that uh, doesn't come easy for me. So I'd love to hear, uh, you know, what inspired you to get into composition and was yeah. it at a young age? Good question. I, you know, I did a little composition it, when I was in high school and college and so forth, but not not a whole lot. And I really felt at that point, it seemed to me the path for me was more in, in terms of performance. Um, when I lived in Sweden, though, this is when I really started the, the composition. Uh, I started doing more composition. And part of it was because I was uh, I was asked by a group, this was before I, I had been received into the Catholic Church, but I had friends who had a, a very dynamic evangel evangelistic organization called Creative Mission in Sweden. And they uh, asked me to compose a musical theater production for them. Oh. <laughs> and I And I hadn't as I said, I hadn't done a lot of composition before, but I was fascinated by this. And so I, I took on this, this, uh, this task and it went really well. And along with that, it was my work as, a, as an accompanist for dance, which I did a lot of for, for a number of years, both here in the States and then in Gothenburg, Sweden, where I lived. And uh, in, in accompanying dance is it's really amazing there's an interaction with 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 the with the ballet dancers or other other forms of dance as well and specifically when i would accompany modern dance uh <laughs> which is not something that i would naturally be that attracted to but this was part of my duties they would ask me simply to improvise and that was uh a real challenge because you start you know okay you're given a motion and a rhythm and a tempo and you have to come up with something that seems to, to correspond to that. <laughs> and so you have an infinite amount of possibilities in front of yes. you. Where do you start? Yes. So you learn to start someplace and you just do something and you see what happens. And then you discover, well, this is sort of amazing, actually. And so it really, the my original uh, start with composition really was, was very much helped by this experience with uh, with improvisation for for dance, even though that's a you know a very different idiom than what I'm yeah. doing, of course, with sacred music. But the principle is basically one of do it, you know, just just start, get let it flow, and see what. It is. <laughs> now everybody may not be called to that. You know that that could be dangerous if you're just if yeah. you're not, if you don't have some kind of training and some sense of of what is uh, has integrity and what doesn't. Yeah. But for me, it was it was a, a threshold that I passed in, in, in doing that and doing a lot of it and getting good input back from the people I was working with, the, the dance, the, the dance school, or the ballet school where I was working and and the, and those who were doing this. Um, and it was a lot of fun and it was very energizing, you might say. So that together with this musical theater production that I was asked to do, and then, then I I let that you know, that, that was very exciting to do that. And it was, so it sort of affirmed me in this, this new path. And um, 
I was well into my 30s at that time. So, um, so yeah, so then that, that was the fir my first real strong introduction to composition. Later on, uh, coming back to the States and having become Catholic, being received into the Catholic Church, I was, uh, well, first of all, in Europe, I had had a really amazing experience of the Catholic liturgy, uh, that, mm. which seemed just, it was so harmonious with the nature of the, the, the liturgy, the, 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 the dignity, the transcendent dignity of the liturgy. And it, it really inspired me as a musician, especially in Sweden, where I was close to a Franciscan monastery. And I, and I lived very close to them uh, for a couple of years, and we're still in close touch. I'm still in touch with them after a long time. But um, the they chanted all the liturgy of the hours and the uh, and the mass with 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 Gregorian chant, often in Swedish, often adapted to Swedish, but also in mm. Latin. But also they brought in elements from the East and from the Slavic uh, traditions of uh, the Byzantine Catholic tradition. So this was uh, this was a major uh, turning point for me because it was uh, discovering something, a treasure that I never yeah. really knew existed. And um, I, of course, in, in music school, I studied Gregorian chant, you know, and study how all these these things happened, but it was very much from the outside, uh, and and not really, not really experiencing it from the inside. You know, C.S. Lewis has this wonderful analogy of stained glass windows. You know, you, you look at them from the outside, and they're not that interesting. But then you enter into the the church, and the sun shines through. And, ah, now I understand it. For me, it was very similar with my experience of sacred music, especially of Gregorian chant and Slavic chant. And so coming back to the States in 1993 and beginning to work in Catholic uh, Catholic parish in Chicago's inner city, I realized that what was going on in, in Catholic music in the United States was different from what I had experienced <laughs> And yeah. the sense of harmony and integrity that I'd, I'd, that had drawn me so much to the church actually was one of the one of the many things that drew me to the church. But that which I'd experienced in, in in Sweden and also in France, that's another story. But uh, this this sense of integrity with the music and the harmony with the nature of the liturgy, I I really missed that when I came back, and I was. Yeah. Like, it was baffling in a way. And um, but working within the church, uh, I had a sense of uh, this deep longing to be able to bring back or, or to bring to the parishes I was working with and the, the, the students in school this gift that I had received. And so, you know, we, we I tried all different ways. Ways of doing that, you know, we did we did a certain amount of Gregorian chant, and people were open to that. Mm -hmm. At the same time, uh, especially as we moved to Massachusetts in 1995, uh, I realized that to simply do traditional sacred music, to simply do Gregorian chant and polyphony, 
was so much of a foreign language for so many people. It had become, unfortunately, you know, yes, tragic, yeah. you might say, a foreign language to so many Catholics, probably the great majority, I would say today, that I, I had this sense there needed to be a bridge. Yeah. And, and, it, and so I had the opportunity to begin composing for the liturgy uh, in, in, well, in Chicago to a certain extent, but also even more so in Massachusetts, in uh, where I was music director for many years. Oh, that's wonderful. So, before before we, I, I want to I want to talk about that. And I definitely want to dive into music, but um, and I agree with everything you're saying. I wanted to hear though a little bit about your conversion story, right? Yeah. Like, did was uh, did, were you a man of faith prior, um, or was it? Uh, we we love to hear that, and I want to hear kind of because we hear now basically what the church has taught throughout all the centuries of music but you're realizing more so from from experience you've had that that incredible experience and and i want to want to go into that but i definitely want to bridge this gap here of of your conversion into catholicism if you wouldn't mind sure sure, sure. right and it's such a long story i'll try to keep it <laughs> okay great uh, we can spend hours just on that but yeah uh, because it's uh, for me the, you know, a major turning point in my life. And a big part of it was when I was living in Sweden, and, and, and most of my journey into the Catholic Church really did take place uh, in Sweden. And then, of course, you know, it's, it's a continuing journey of conversion, which has continued, which continues throughout our lives. But in Sweden, I was involved. I, first of all, yes, I, I grew up in a, in a strong Christian home. And uh, my grandparents were models of, of faith and, you know, integrity in their faith. And that was a great inspiration to me. And my, my parents, thankfully, you know, brought me up in a, uh, in a Christian, a strong Christian upbringing. And from an early age, I had a sense of a deep desire to do the will of God and to be faithful to that. Um, so, so that that was my background, and mainly Baptist. But you know, as Baptists, one of the sort of one of the foundational principles is it doesn't make any difference what denomination you are. Mm. At least in my the Baptist tradition I grew up in, the idea is you know is belief in Christ, fidelity to Him, fidelity in prayer and and in studying the Scriptures and in living a godly life. That was so so. It wasn't so much just being Baptist. It was the idea of following Christ. Um, when I moved to Sweden, actually, I was very fascinated by the story of my great-grandparents who had come from Sweden and who were persecuted because they were they were Baptists in Sweden. My great-grandfather was a preacher. Uh, it, it wasn't his main occupation. but So I was very fascinated to find out more about that. And I actually, I became very much involved in the Baptist parish or Baptist church in Gothenburg. And I ended up actually working for them for a while, as well as a music, mm. uh, music consultant for, for, for the, actually for the national Swedish Baptist church. And, and that was really amazing because I, you know, I was like reconnecting with this. This was probably the church my parents, my great grandparents would have visited before they got on the boat to go no, wow. literally the, the, the place. And so, and that where I was working, and it was great, uh, wonderful people too. Um, but anyway, I have to, I have to try to condense here. The, 
when I was, the thing about Sweden is it's a wonderful, uh, you know, I have many of my best friends in Sweden. There's the natural beauty is amazing. Uh, the people, there's so many wonderful people that I know there. But at the same time, it, especially when I was living there, of course, it's been it's been almost 30 years now since I've lived there regularly. But there, there's a lot also a lot of depression. It's a, it's a place of, of it's uh, very much a secularized society. Mm-hmm. And and uh, where there's been a, a real, you might say, a deliberate uh, move to exclude talk about God from the national conversation, from the from the public square. So, and 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 what I found, and I think a lot of people find who come from us, is that when you live, if you just visit, people are are the warmest. They welcome you so warmly. It's just great. Go there for a month or two, and you'll have a great time. <laughs> but, but live there for two or three years, and and typically people have this experience of darkness. You know, it's it's, it's there's a certain darkness that sort of permeates mm-hmm. the culture, and mm-hmm. and. Part of that is that you know the actual physical darkness because it's very very dark in the winter, and then sometimes in the in the summer it could be very cloudy as well in a place like Gothenburg. So this <laughs> it certainly has an effect as well. But there's a great I, I would say I experienced a tremendous sense of spiritual and psychological darkness. Mm-hmm. A lot of people in mental institutions as well. There are lots lots of mental illness, and so in the midst of that, and I, I, I you know thankfully I, I didn't. Uh, um, I, I, I never became ill or terribly depressed, but in the midst of that darkness and seeing friends who were, you know, really were afflicted physically and mentally, or mentally, you know, it really had a sense of, of uh, developed a strong sense of hunger in me for realizing how much I needed uh, the close uh, to be close to God, how much I needed to. Uh, to pray and to be close to God, to walk close to God in the midst of this. And I was I was working close to a Catholic church at the time. I start I just it was right on my way. So I started visiting there. Mm-hmm. And I and I noticed that there was something in the Catholic Church that was different. And I and I I mean just intuitively to go and and, and pray in the Baptist Church, which was good. And and the this glorious Lutheran, Lutheran church was right down the street from my apartment. It was good. It was good. But there was something that I couldn't put my finger on in the Catholic Church that when I visited there, I felt uh, a, a consolation and a sense of presence and sen- an ability to pray that I didn't sense anywhere else. So that was part of it. Uh, another big part of it was meeting people who were mo- radiant models of integrity mm. in the Catholic Church mm. in a way that I had never met. I mean, of course, I, I know many wonderful people that, that were certain that were great Christian people before I, before this. So I, I'm not meaning to minimize that, Sure. but in, in the, in the battle, you might say, this, this battle between light and darkness, this sense of how do, how do I live with integrity in a very secularized, uh, almost militantly secular society that these Catholic people that I met were just like, I never met anything quite like this before. There was something. There's a depth there, wow. and there's wisdom, and there's there's this this in, this combination between. It wasn't just it was of the heart, yes, but it was also of the mind, and this sense that there's a a wisdom. It's you know one of the weaknesses we might say in the evangelical tradition is that is the you know the downplaying of the role of reason and the use of our mind. 
And so I found as I, I became closer to Catholic, new Catholic friends in Sweden that this was like, you know, you need to use your mind because we're called to love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, yeah. and strength, right? Yeah. So this was a revel. It's sort of a revelation to me. The idea that you know it's a good thing to to ask questions <laughs> because it's not fideism. It's it's there's a real aspect of the intellectual life. And so I started uh, devouring books. You know, reading church fathers, lives of saints, etc. John Paul II. You know, love and responsibility. Uh, just anything I could get my hands on. And I and I realized, whoa. This is this is what I you know this is this it, this all fits together, and the the history of the church did not so, stop early in the church and then restart in the 1500s. You know there's yeah. there's there's a continuity there's there's a glorious continuity here. So anyway, that was going to, so there was an intellectual journey, and then as I mentioned before, there's also my contact with the Franciscans. Yeah, uh, which was which was really major because that's uh, there I was sort of connected with a real community that was where the fraternal the sense of fraternal charity and serving the poor was just uh, I became connected to them to the sense so I had a sort of a landing place it wasn't just in my mind but it was also in reality the other thing at the risk of saying too much in our limited time was my contact with the uh, L'Arche community. That's L-apostrophe-A-R-C-H-E. Yeah. And they, this was major, this was also a real big influence for me, both in, in Gothenburg, where there was a, what's called a faith and light community, which is, it's a little different from L'Arche, but it's a it's an offshoot from L'Arche because it's families meeting together on a monthly basis. And we went on, I was involved with that in Gothenburg. Uh, we, we went together to see Pope John Paul II when he came to Sweden wow. in 1989. And I eventually visited the large community in France outside of Compiègne. And I ended up spending a good deal of time there as well. And really, I have to say that the witness of the mentally or the intellectually disabled people was one of the strongest things that brought me into the church because there I saw people that were not able. This might sound a little paradoxical after talking about the intellectual. No, still, though, yeah. Community. But people that were not capable of that or not capable of entering deeply intellectually into a Bible study, say, mm. were really able to receive this grace in a mysterious way from the from the from the mass, from the sacraments, in, in a way that just seemed almost tangible. You know, it's like this is it, this can't be fake. It's not, it's not mind games, it's not trying to think positively. There's something happening here that I cannot deny. And also at large, the adoration of the Blessed Sacrament was really a key factor every day. And I saw assistants, people working with, you know, this was it, coming in as a Protestant and and just looking at it, it was like, it's obvious to me that there's a power source here yeah. that I can't explain that's real, that's not just positive thinking. And so that these were all things that eventually led me to, in 1992, um, I was received into the church, into the Catholic Church. Wow! Thanks be to God. Yeah. Oh, I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. yeah. So now that you've been Catholic for a couple decades, uh, yeah. is it something that <clears throat> you found a home musically and spiritually? Like, obviously, there's a lot of. Um, and I don't say this in any way as a negative thing. I experienced it myself. But a lot of converts come in and 
it's just it's the beauty of this excitement, this enthusiasm, and then, you know, give it a few years and they're starting to cool. And they're But I, I'm just wondering, like, is that, is, that a, is that something you experienced or has there been very, very much what you um, prayed and hoped as you entered the church? Good, good question. Yeah. So I think it gets down to um, part of what gets out is to search for truth. You know, if we're, are we looking for just what is pleasing uh, or what seems to work right now? Or are we really, are we really seeking the truth about Christ and his church? So, you know, in that sense, there's never been a, a day where I, I wanted, I never, never been a moment when I wanted to go back. Um, of course, you know, emotionally or, you know, there's ups and, ups and downs. And there's also questions. You know, Colonel Newman said, you know, a thousand questions not, does not equal one doubt. But I'm constantly questioning things. And I'm constantly asking, you know, like, but that's part of the beauty of the Catholic faith is you can do that. Yeah. It's a place from which you can actually ask deep questions and continue to ask them. And and find answers, you know, it you know it's a it's a road of discovery, but it's, it's also a road sometimes of being baffled and wondering how can this be or how can this happen or, and and I think that, you know, especially of course with Pope John Paul II, and uh, Pope Benedict, and um, they, these were shining lights for me and and that they really played an important part in my own journey. Uh, well. John Paul, Pope John Paul II, especially because the, you know he was he still was Pope for 13 years after I came into the church. So he that's yeah. really that was a great grace. And to be with him, you know, in um, in when he came to Sweden was amazing. But he was a, he was a, a was a shining star, so to speak, of of sanctity and and sanity and wisdom for for me. Um. And and so the, the I'm trying to think how to say this, but in any given diocese or at every any given time, the the lead church leadership will not necessarily be uh, that kind of shining light. And sometimes it seems disturbing. Like, well, what's going on here? I don't. This does not seem to be uh, following <laughs> the pattern that I'm I'm expecting. Uh, what's going and and I think that's a legitimate question to ask. But then then we're thrown back to the whole the, the basic principle of the what is the truth about the church and what is my responsibility. Um, and and am I am I being proud? Am I being am I, you know, do I realize that I need to start with myself? You know, this is this. So I think when we when we encounter what seems to be leadership that's lacking in some way, for me, it calls me. I have to ask, what what am I doing to solve? You know, how can I change things if I can? And would I be better if I was in that leadership position? I I love Chesterton. You know, when he says no man is any good until he knows how bad he is or how bad he could be until he's he's squeezed out of his soul the last ounce of the oil of the Pharisees. That's, mm, that's roughly mm. it's from Father yeah. Brown, Mr. Father Brown. And so I love that. And so for me, 
what in answer to your question, Sam, I think that that's that's probably the one of the the biggest uh, struggles you might say is whether it be a pastor. Uh, you know, it's been, I've been in some situations too where it's you know it seems like where are we going here? It's it's can can be confusing, but but the answer is finally for me faithfulness. You know, is is uh, Father, I'm now trying to think of what his name, the one who was with working so much with uh, the uh, Catholic evangelical dialogue, uh, Father Newhouse, as he used to say, was a fidelity, fidelity, fidelity. And, and I, I think that's true for all of us. You know, are, are we being, you know, we, we've been given this beautiful gift of the Catholic faith that is is there and we know what it is and we have the sacraments and we have the teaching of the church we have the tradition we have we have so much we have what it takes to live faithfully today and so so that's 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 a long answer to your short question yeah no, I think that's terrific. And so you saw a void. Um, these are all questions that every man should have, but I see that you you saw a void in the church that you could fill with 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 good music, right? You saw mm -hmm. some of the we won't spend a lot of time or any time really talking about that because I want to spend time talking about your music and talk about, uh, you know, I know that through the classical and romantic age, you know, the idea of a composer writing a full mass was like a, a you know, a sign of accomplishment. And and you've done that. And and so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your journey into sacred music and your hopes for sacred music in the Magnificat Institute. Um and and your you know why Saint Philip Neri you know as your mass like all of these questions roll around but sure. but let's just start and talk about that what you're doing to better sacred music within the Holy Roman Catholic Church. Yes, it, again it's a, it's a really long. It's I know <laughs> it's a long response, but I'm going to try to condense it again. Yeah. Um, in a way, well, first of all. You know, anybody who's been really immersed in the great traditions of Catholic sacred music, uh, Gregorian chant and sacred polyphony, and really discovered how, so to speak, how they work, how, how they they fit so beautifully into the liturgy, and, and doing them with one's whole heart, and doing them in a prayerful way, there, there's power there. And, and so anybody who's been had that immersion, in a way, there, there's a normal sense of, uh, I'm not worthy to try to touch this. I'm not worthy to try to compose something new in a way because because what do, what what do I expect to do? You know, do something that's going to compare to to chant or Palestrina or Zascana or Mozart. You know, it's like and uh, so so the the. But the thing that really, in the midst of that, and I think that's a healthy and almost essential first reaction that, that any composer needs to have, unless we've discovered this genius, you might say. But then to realize, as I was mentioning earlier, that there's this, this chasm between those who have had the grace to experience yeah. this tradition and those who are faithful Catholics, who are of goodwill, and through no fault of their own, have been alienated. So for me, that 
was it became like a fire inside me say we need to reach these people and and if I can do it with chant and polyphony, I will do it. And I and I will continue that I think the edu long-term education of people is is very, very important. Yeah, and I it agree. It is a long-term project. So from that fire, you might say, of which I think you know, which is something that at least is in harmony with the with the with the nature of love, the nature of the Holy of what the Holy Spirit inspires in us in us. Is that sense okay? What can I do? And then receiving what seemed to be inspiration to try. Oh, let, and again, getting back to my original experience of, of composition, knowing that sometimes you just start it. Yeah. And, and as I began doing it, I know I sensed there was confirmation. You might say, not just in myself, but from many of the people I was working with. Thankfully, and it seemed to it seemed to be wow. This is like a gift. And uh, that, that I have a responsibility to be a good steward of. So that's what got me going. And, and then it just it's it's gone on and on from there. And uh, you know, the encouragement of, of certain key people has been really big. Uh different friends whom I admire greatly. Um different, you know, I, I won't name all the names, but it's people that that, that I admire. Tremessa, who, who have really encouraged me to keep going, and that, that inner sense of of of, of encouragement, uh, and so Philip Neary and I, and the Mass of Saint Philip Neary was really that sprang from my exposure to the project of the new translation of the Missal that came out in 2011 or 2012. Yeah, right. So that, I was involved in a certain way with editing of that, and and it really. Um, made me see the need for something beyond, I mean, even though there's a lot of good in the chancellor and the missile, I really had a sense there was a need still for a bridge to people that were unfamiliar with it. So, and, and so what I've done is very much interwoven with chant, but it's also the idea of, okay, we, especially when the moment of the new translation was uh, how do, how do we, how we can resonate with people in a holy way. And Philip Neary is, uh, St. Philip Neary was, was a, a great inspiration for me and still it is, and I'm sure will be for all my life because he, in the midst of a, a similar, you might say a period of transition in the midst of the Renaissance in the 16th century in Rome, he was a patron to composers who were doing this new form of, who were, were uh, Cultivating this new form of, of sacred polyphony, Palestrina, yeah, and other composers in Rome, and and he really, I think he represents to me the way in which uh, adaptations and and growth can happen with sacred music, in a in a holy, noble way that is not just it's not simply a departure from tradition. It's not saying we cut ourselves off from tradition. But it's saying we're we're deeply connected tradition, and yet we're open to these new inspirations. That's Philip Neary he, for me. He that's what he says to me is, you know, it's possible to do something of integrity and that's holy and that's beautiful to the glory of God. Yeah. So this is a show for for Catholic men, and and you know a lot of men. Um, 
you know, uh, beauty isn't something that they think about a lot. You know, they're they're kind of caught up in the day to day of providing for a family or something. You know, they're they're kind of told by the culture that you know you can care about working out or going to the gym. You know, those you know, working on your car, those kinds of things are you know you can work care about those things as a man. But but you know, like uh, you know, coral masterworks. You know, maybe that's not so much on most men's radar. Um, and and I'm not saying it shouldn't be. It should be. Uh, but I guess my my last question for me is you know for a man who's maybe saying like you know i'm i'm in the daily grind i'm working nine to five like you know or maybe longer and i'm just trying to scrap it out in this economy where everything seems to be going crazy like like what is what is why is music important to me why is sacred music important to me and why should we support those efforts that we see where composers like yourself are seeking to continue that tradition that great tradition of our of our church that has this beautiful sacred music um and so i guess there's the the big philosophical question being like why does it matter and and obviously yeah. you know everyone sure. on this right here knows why it matters but uh, i just want to hear you articulate in your own words yes so uh first of all i think you know Again, it's key for every man, every woman, to ask what's what is my calling and what's my what are my gifts. So uh, certainly, I don't think everybody is called to be a musician or to be you know be directly involved. But I think that everybody, it's good that people are aware of the importance of music. Even so, even if it's peripheral, and if it's supporting from you know not is the main their main gift or their main calling. And that is that, you know, as uh, the church has, has traditionally said, that sacred music, the purpose of sacred music, it being part, an integral part of the sacred liturgy, is the glory of God and the edification of the faithful, and the sanctification of the faithful. So what do those mean? Well, this means that music is quite important in the sense that the kind of music we do and the way we do it in Mass Either it, it can reveal something of the glory of God, not necessarily through its, not necessarily through its grandiosity or, or great intricacy, but it should, the music we do, should reveal the glory of God to the faithful and also to, to those outside as, a, as a, a means of evangelization, you might say. And this is vitally important. If our music does not do that, if our music is superficial, if our music is casual and, and does not re reflect something of the transcendent dignity of the mass, we're, we're in trouble. We, we're, we're not, it's not doing its job, and we, we need to fix that. So, yeah, yeah. And, and also, the, again, for, for the edification of the faithful, We've gotten so I think so far from the idea of this of the integrity of sacred music that we we've lost that sense of this great gift that the music can be, and it, it's not simply beauty in the sense of making it pretty mm -hmm. or making it you know yeah you know, I I think my experience of sacred music especially in Sweden is it, is it has great virility yeah is it and and this is another thing too you know. Does the music in our mass, does it inspire people to be uh, faithful martyrs? Martyrs primarily in the sense of being witnesses. But, you know, does the music that we hear, you know, is it, maybe it makes us feel 
good. And that's okay. That's not to be despised. That music gives us warm feelings or even inspires us to prayer. But is it the kind of music that is going to help us to march onward in the midst of, of resistance and persecution and, and, and difficulties? Yeah. And this is what this is what the gift of sacred music can do and should do, even when it's very simple and humble, even in a little church out in the middle of nowhere with a few people, we need to make it our aim at least to have, let the music have this sense of integrity. No. To the glory of God, edification and sanctification of the faithful. Yeah, thank you. And there's just two things that really come to mind when you're saying that. And I completely agree. I was very blessed to go to Mass at Our Lady of Walsingham Cathedral in Houston, where they have, you know, a scola. They have yeah. uh, a choir that sings Lassus and, and Bruckner yeah. and Mozart and Palestrina yeah. and um and, and but even uh, newer music, but as long as it has that that weight and that quality uh, to edify the glory of the Eucharist and of uh, you know the divine liturgy, and that's just it exactly what you're saying. I I found myself um, now I I do come from a musical background, so that's been a huge blessing. But everybody I talked to at that church, they didn't go to that church to hear another Taylor Swift song or to hear another thing that would be on the radio. They were they found something that was radically different and beautiful and enriching and uh, edifying in ways that they had never experienced in their lives and and there it was in the glory of mass as it should be and i'm reminded of uh, actually a quote i'm going to use a quote that sam sent me um uh, a while ago which was from roger scrutton who said beauty is perishing from the earth because we live as though it does not matter but when you've had that experience you realize and that's just it i think you were getting at it you're, you're building this bridge is that people that quote might not resonate with somebody because they've never experienced the other side and in that experience like you had and that experience that i've had and um a modern day in dallas that has their scola and um you know so there, there are places that that are doing their darndest to, to bring this back but i want to i want to spend my final uh time and question with you is um that richness and that beauty that you are bringing based off of the tradition um of the faith and i know you've talked about this i've seen a couple of your your um videos and things like that that you know we're not talking cantus firma but but basically there is this chant that is that is brought in there's this polyphony there's this integrity as you've already stated and um and and what you're able to maybe what you're seeing and experiencing to those that are actually using your music within the divine liturgy the parishioners and things like that um are, is there hope can, can you grant us hope with with what you're doing um and uh, and what you're able to to see in in the mass there Yes, I think that I, I'm filled with hope, believe it or not, you know, in the yeah. midst of, and, and sometimes it's easy, you know, going to a parish, wherever it might be and traveling that you say, what's going, you know, it, it, it seems almost, when you, when you look at the, how do I say, when, what what I've been describing and what we've been what you've been describing what I've been describing is, as far as the sense of integrity and power and and uh, depth of spiritual yeah. beauty, you, you know, it's very easy to be discouraged because you, when you look at the quantity of 
you know, of, of a different, you might say, an, another culture, so to speak, that's developed yeah. is not like that. So it, it almost seems, on one from one perspective, it almost seems like an impossible task. To, yes. To, you know, how can anybody? Because people are getting used. They've gotten used to this. This has, you know, been going on for decades now. But I, I, I am filled with hope because, from my perspective, I also see lots of priests, lots of church musicians who are hungry yeah. for what we're talking about. And, and they're willing to make sacrifice and do it. And, I th my, and, I, and especially comparing 1993 when I returned back to the States to now in 2023, so it's been 30 years, there you go. Yeah. I, I see. I see all sorts of signs of hope all over the place. You know, mm. we're we're um, and I don't. I think it'd be you know naive to think that all of a sudden that everybody you know or the majority of parishes all over are going to be transformed suddenly. But to see these beacons of hope all around the country, and the, of, of good things happening, and seeing a longing to keep growing. Uh, in my mind, that's what's going to endure. That you know, the, getting because I think we're at a place in our in history right now where we are called. You might say, we, we're all called to be martyrs, and in, in the sense of witnesses, and often in a countercultural way. And the you know the it's it's tragic to see so many people falling you know falling away or leaving the Catholic Church. Uh, I think that you know, in one way, the music is a key to you know, and that music that does not inspire us to be faithful in the midst of opposition. I don't know if it will last all that long. Yeah. It will last, you know, it, not to say that it has no value, but it, it's it's not necessarily the music of martyrs. Yeah, yeah. and. At the same, you know, so we get back to this whole vision of Christ of the 12, 12 disciples, you know, starting small. And I think that's from that I looking at in that idea of of, of the genius of Christ in and the of the lives of saints and the, the power of one person or one group of people who are filled with the love of God and the fire of the Holy Spirit, there's a tremendous power there to bear fruit. So this these all these things give me great hope. Oh, I'm so so thankful for your your wisdom and your maturity and your answers. It's um it is it's it's so enjoyable for me and hopefully for our listeners. Um so for the final question is two things where can men find out more information about the Magnificat Institute and the work that you are doing and yes. if they want to bring it in some of your music to their parish what are some yes. suggestions that you would give uh to help guide them sure well the, we have two websites uh one is magnificatinstitute.org and that is focused on the work of our institute to help parishes and communities and so forth. Yeah, there's absolutely. a lot of information there. There's study materials. There's uh, there's uh, there are links to recordings of music from the different rites. Uh, it, it's there's lots of information there. The other website is pauljerberg.com, which is where you find all my, the scores and lots of recordings of my music there as well. 
Um, they can also go to YouTube. On the YouTube, uh, I've got a site, uh, uh, what do you call it, page, YouTube page? Yeah, channel, yeah. Which yeah. I, there, a channel with lots of my music there too. And so these are all good resources. But as far as uh, bringing, introducing this music to their parish, it, they might want to look at pauldrumberg.com and there's you can contact me there and and I'll get the, I'll, I'll get your message by email and I'll respond you know hopefully I'll have um, the time I, I will have the time somehow to to respond and uh, we can we can discuss that and you can see what we've got there as resources. Well, that's wonderful. Well, I'm just so grateful for your time and for you joining us today, Paul. So thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much, John. Well, as we end every episode, be a man, be a saint. Thank you.